0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Mbit Podcast. I'm your host, Seamus Medan, and today we have Mariana Senko, who is an early-stage venture capitalist and co-founder of Future Ventures. Before Future Ventures, some of the team has invested in companies such as Tesla, SpaceX, Neuralink, Planet, and Skype, which represent over $800 billion in aggregate value. Today, Mariana invests in frontier technologies that make the world a better place, including nuclear fusion, sustainable agriculture, land management, B immunology, and women's reproductive longevity. So first off, thank you, Mariana, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. And before we dive into this, I know you're originally from Western Ukraine. Do you have any comments or anything you'd like to voice about the situation over there?
1: Oh, I'm so delighted and honored to be here, Seamus. And thank you for that question. It really means a lot to me. It's a heartbreaking time. It's one that I struggle to just be present in the reality of the absolute atrocities that are happening there. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel like the modern world. It doesn't jibe with my understanding of how humans treat one another and what is a reasonable path forward. And I'm so honored and grateful by the outpouring of support from everyone in in my broader community and from the number of people who are so deeply engaged in this space. And if I can point to something, it's that totalitarian dictatorships that rely on pinning people into their circle of influence by controlling central assets in people's lives, like access to energy and foodstuffs, that's a really scary reality. And it's one that an awful lot of people in the world are potentially subject to. And I think that when we think about the future unfolding going forward, I think we need to ask the question is how how can we live in a more peaceful and verdant world. And I think one of those is democratizing access to energy, to food, to you know Maslow's basic hierarchy of needs. And that's one of the things that we look at from an investment perspective is how to shift our reliances, particularly on these petrol states, because clearly it just puts people into really unfortunate circumstances. And I think we can do better going forward.
0: Yeah, I think regardless of where we are in the world, I think every human and every person on the planet should have access to these basic types of livable resources and even freedom of speech that we don't always see in all these countries. But now that we delve into the venture capital space, you've been at the forefront of the venture capital industry for quite some time. So how did you get involved in the field? And would you mind sharing with the audience your backstory behind that?
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question, and it, it's kind of fun to reflect back because I, I don't know that anybody. I suppose these days pe- people are aware of the venture capital industry and, and and aim for it. But when I when I was starting my career, I, I certainly had no idea what venture capital was, and I was surprised surprised to find myself in this particular sphere of influence. But my background is as a material scientist and biomedical engineer, and I. Did a fair bit of research and work with robotics, and really thought that I would spend my life as a research scientist and engineer, but quickly found myself at odds with kind of frustration of the pace with which either my academic research or in some of the early companies I worked with, the the pace with which the that work was kind of hitting the real world and actually helping real people and, and, you know, being tangible. And I felt a real conflict, particularly when I was working for larger chemicals and materials companies that between the sentiment of, you know, we had these technologies that we knew were going to be very, very interesting potentially for the future of the company. And yet the company was very, very focused on near-term shareholder value. Like, you know, what were the, what was going to be the share price the next quarter, I was like, you can't run a research organization and care about your share price. I mean, you should care about your share price the next quarter, right. but it, like, you know, <laughs> this <Yeah. laughs> aspect of this firm should not have any relation to that. You know, there needs to be some level of long term planning alongside short term planning. And that's really when I first started learning about who in the world thinks on these longer term timescales. And so I joined a small boutique research and consulting firm that. Helped large corporations think about their the ways in which technologies might affect and forecast their own futures. And that was called a little group called Lux Research, and I was really fortunate there to work with a number of brilliant people, and also just to have these awesome clients like Fortune 100 companies who were actively thinking about okay, what happens when drones and driverless cars show up? And this is more than a decade ago now. Which is frightening to consider for other reasons. But again, I was a little bit saddened that, you know, we had these really, really thoughtful clients who were asking these questions, and yet, at the end of the day, their hands were tied inside their own organizations. They still they, you know, they knew perfectly well that their own core businesses might be upended by these shifts in technology that were coming. And yet these kind of behemoths that they were a part of, that, you know, you can't turn a tanker around very quickly. And so, started started hearing a little bit about folks who were taking a keener eye to, to some of the research that we were doing. And that's really when I first started hearing about venture capitalists funding startups and specifically these kind of deep technology startups that I was interested in. Because really what we were doing was Going and talking to interesting startups, and then trying to position them as like, "Hey, here's an interesting partner." Large Fortune 100 company turns out the Fortune 100 companies didn't care that much, but venture capitalists did. And thankfully, I got to sit slide kind of into a position in between the two, which is one of a group I had gotten to know a little bit was Airbus, the large European aircraft manufacturer. They have a lot of business lines, but probably everyone knows them for their planes and they were starting off a venture fund and and spinning off a little seed fund within that and so i had the the fortune to to join that group in in some of its earliest days and help them build out a venture practice and that was that was really my first entrance into venture capital
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned, especially as a company scales, even if you're lucky to build a company and scale it to a large behemoth, when you get to that stage, it can be very difficult for that innovation and pace of innovation to continue. But you mentioned you were a research analyst. How did you come across the venture capital field? And then what specifically compelled you to like transition into that field?
1: Well, we so to be perfectly frank, we were really lucky in that. Lux Research actually was kind of a spin out out of a venture firm of all things. So Lux Capital had kind of co-started Lux Research and then the two weren't by, by the time I got to Lux Research the two were absolutely independent entities. You know, the the only similarity really was the the name that was kind of left over, but I got to meet some of the folks at Lux Capital kind of through that tangential connection. They they were still kind of occasionally coming to some of the events that we would put on and and vice versa. And while there was no formal business relationship between the two groups, we we just kind of knew of and around each other. I remember being particularly inspired and, you know, should he ever hear this, I I will credit him with Shaheen, a partner at Lux, who just showed up at one of the events that I was organizing, talking about... Again, this was now nearly a decade ago talking about electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft and and kind of how those were proliferating with the technologies that people were thinking about in driverless cars and the advances in batteries and the advances in drones and the rest of it. And I recall very clearly him showing up at a meeting and asking probably some of the most insightful questions of everyone in the room, which I thought was fascinating, given that everyone else in the room was kind of like an expert in one of these supposed fields. And his questions were so targeted and and so practical that it kind of gave me pause. And I thought, who is this person and how do they get to be in this position of asking these kind of relevant questions. And I had that experience a couple of times over. There were a couple other partners who I ran at at various venture firms who I've run across who I was kind of inspired by their capacity to think really thoughtfully about advances that were happening in a particular technical field and kind of extract, okay, like, what do we do about that? Is that relevant in the near term? Can we start a robot company or whatever the relevant piece was around that? And and that's what inspired me. I was like, oh, the, you know, this these are people who have like a leverage point. Like the, this is an inflection point. This is how you accelerate something that might otherwise get trapped in the back of a laboratory closet and bring it to the forefront and make it useful for people. And so that that's really how I first got introduced and and got compelled to to jump ship.
0: And you co-founded now Future Ventures with Steve Jervison, who is one of the co-founders of DFJ with Tim Draper. How did you both first meet over at DFJ and eventually what sparked you to both launch a fund together?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's been a ride. And it's so funny to me, too, because I I really I, I still look back and go, you know, the first transition in my life was was leaving leaving science and engineering research essentially, because it's like a one-way door, right? Like when, once you go, it, particularly, this a joke among venture capitalists, which is at some point go, okay, this is the only thing I can do now. Like what, you know, who who would allow me to do anything else with once you, once you start on this path, it, it really, it's an amazing opportunity. It also can feel like a one-way door. But when I stepped through that threshold, certainly when I joined Airbus, I realized, oh, wow, this profession is a ton of fun. It's you're constantly learning, but you can be hamstrung in different ways depending on the organization you're in and the governance around it, and any number of other things. And I decided that if I was going to stay in venture, I wanted to kind of try the the purest form of it, which would be one of these large institutional venture capital firms and DFJ, co-founded by. Steve and, and Tim. Well, Tim and John were there first, and they brought on Steve as the first partner and have so much respect for the, those three. And essentially, I called a friend when I was thinking about what might be next after Airbus, and he suggested that there's probably only one person in venture who's really willing to make crazy early-stage technology bets and who's one of the most fun people in the industry to chat with and that friend of mine suggested that I go chat with Steve. He said, you know, he Steve Steve's the dude who's willing to to take the deep technical bets and when I did my homework and I learned a bit more about DFJ and what the folks there were up to, I thought that that was probably a pretty true sentiment and so I got myself on Steve's calendar for a half hour chat which turned into meeting all of the partners and frenetically, you know, scrambling to cancel whatever Else was supposed to be on my calendar for that day, and I had the pleasure of of joining joining DFJ and getting to work closely with Steve. There, unfortunately, Tim was not; had gone off to go do his his own endeavors that you get, your listeners have learned about recently. Um, associates, yeah, that's right. And we still have a really really wonderful relationship with Tim, but I can't say that I had the pleasure of working directly with Tim. But Steve and I had a lot of fun together at DFJ. I then wanted to see what another large firm looked like just to, you know, kind of see see the landscape, got to chat with a few folks and ended up joining Coastal Ventures for a brief period of time, which was an exceptional learning experience. And I'd probably still be there were it not for the fact that Steve and I went for a walk one day and said, what would it look like if we wholly focused on the kinds of companies we were excited about, where if the deep tech, exciting foundational technology companies were not 10% of the portfolio or 20 or 30 at the outside, but we're 100% of the things that we worked on. Could we build a boutique practice around that? And what would that look like? And how would you structure that? And we thought that it was a sufficiently compelling and interesting question that we wanted to give it a go. And here we are a couple of years late later and three funds in and it's been it's been an amazing journey.
0: Definitely. And your firm invests in these early stage startups. You mentioned that deep tech aspect of the firm, which is a majority of it. Could you walk us through your investment strategy and how you decide to come across these future tech companies and which ones are actually worth taking part in investment in?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, particularly when there's this varied as they are for us, right? You you mentioned B immunology earlier and nuclear fusion, and B, how do you make the sense of those two things? I think first and foremost for us, we are really driven to say that venture capital can do all sorts of things in the world, good, bad, sideways, right? I I don't I don't think that it's like necessarily. I don't think anyone can point to and say like all oh, those guys only do good work, right? I I, I think. Totally depends on the incentive structure. I think what I'm personally interested about the industry in is this question of it's such a high leverage point, right? It, it's, a, it's an opportunity to really lend capital to brilliant ideas and give them such an accelerant in times when they most need it. And my question constantly is like, well, what, what are the things that we could bring into existence that would most benefit from that. And that subsequently the world will most benefit from. And so I think that's always the question that we start with asking is does, does a technology, does a company really need to exist? And it's entirely, you know, there, there's like, there's not an empirical question associated with that. It's an entirely an objective. It's it, 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 this, this, this kind of, level setting is something that sits in mine and Steve's heads and our, in our partnership, right? We're not saying that this is an objective truth. We're just saying that like, this is a, this is a perspective we carry. And I, and I want to always state that up front because that's the reality for every venture fund, right? Like, I don't think we're specific in that. I, I think the reality is that we all carry our biases and we all have certain belief systems and we all have certain sense of structures that we align to. And, attenuate ourselves to and so i i feel really strongly that every fund is doing the what they believe is the best possible work and like this is just the style that ours take and so we specifically are looking for interesting technology first like kind of you know all these all of our portfolio companies are built on like some fundamental technology uh aha breakthrough perspective why because it's the thing that's most compelling to us right like at the end of the day we're Tech nerds and scientists and geeks, and that's what is most inspiring to us, and and causes the fire to turn on in our bellies. And then the the second aspect is, you know, to what end and for whom. And I think what's exciting about our companies is when you look at a, a something like nuclear fusion, right? There's no question of market. Like if it works, everyone will do it because like you, you, there's not. there's no which one would you choose there's no there's no marketing question around our portfolio companies it's like we have to save the bees because we need to eat food and 70 percent of our food is is insect pollinated and our insects are dying so figure out how to save them and we'll be fine
0: it's like a winner Um, takes all scenario yeah
1: exactly exactly and so i think that's you know, for for all of the feel goodness possibly associated with our fund. The the simple reality is also like ruthlessly business minded, which is our perspective is that these companies all have the capacity to absolutely have a winner-take-all position in their markets because they should they work, kind they should be kind of the, the you know right path forward.
0: I guess you mentioned a little bit earlier on the types of industries in future tech that are catching your eye, but what are some of the up and coming tech startups could be that you invested in or not that might be catching your attention the most right now?
1: It's a good question, especially as we think about, right, we're in a macroeconomic contraction where it's it's kind of an, it's an interesting time. I think for many times it's an existentially threatening time. And so I think one of the things that we're looking out for is that there's a lot of things that probably require tens to potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in capital to see light at the end of the tunnel. And that's like if you have to fund a clinical trial or you have to build a lot of a very expensive product or you have to build a battery manufacturing facility, right? And I think just being cognizant of the fact that follow-on funding risk is probably as high as it's ever been is something to really, really pay attention to right now. And so I think one of the things that we're getting pretty interested in and excited about is this question of what what are technological advances that can show proof points early without taking on without needing to like kind of take on enormous sums of capital to do so. And I've been particularly curious on two fronts in this, which is one in the climate space of all things, right? This is a space where direct carbon capture, super not trivial. I'm not sure that mechanistic solutions are definitely going to be better than nature-based solutions. I think you can have arguments in all directions, but the the reality is that we have pressures, existential existence on planet pressures that are, you know, we have to make decisions today. And I think this is a space where technologies can make huge differences and, and help us hit some of these goals that are absolutely unachievable otherwise. And so I think in that, we've been really, really excited and curious about things in the food production space, for example, so alternative proteins, because the simple reality is you won't hit a single... Even if you manage to disappear from the road, all cars, all trucks, all transportation today, you still wouldn't hit your climate accord goals by 2050 unless you change the the kind of red meat production, which is terrifying to consider. So we're we're investors in a couple company in this companies in the space that are thinking about kind of what are sustainable paths to better and also delicious and healthy protein creation for for folks in the future. And within that we have better meat and upside foods and new culture and also a company called Enriched Ag, which is helping farmers think about how to better enable regenerative agricultural practices. So we're like really thinking broadly across the board. And then something we haven't invested in that I'm just curious about is essentially just looking more deeply at the hype around these large language models and this latest stage of AI innovation and saying, okay, this is, this is nice and, and interesting. And chat GPT is kind of fun to play with and, Terrifying in other ways, and are there actual meaningful use cases for these things? And is there anything fundamentally different about these approaches around these transformers that's somehow different than what people have been pushing at in in the AI space for the last couple of years? And I don't I, I think it's an open-ended question. I think lots and lots of investment has flowed into the space and and we certainly have a bunch of companies in our portfolio that are adjacent but i i'm i'm really excited to see how these models proliferate forward and to see what use cases cuz now now really interesting inflection point around those
0: you mentioned solutions to climate change. Even some solutions we might have thought were a clean energy, completely clean. For example, lithium ion batteries aren't actually that clean. For example, I believe in some areas of Brazil, it's actually polluting the water significantly through these lithium ion deposits. When I was talking to Molly Wood as, um one of the investors over at launch in that climate space is we might not actually ever have something that's 100% clean, but just getting to that next level, at least a better alternative to what we have right now could be helpful. But now that we delve into this a little bit, from being many years in the VC space, what would you say would probably be the most important lessons of you've learned throughout your career? And how do you continue to use them as you grow and evolve as an investor?
1: Oh man, there are so many lessons. I think first and foremost, trusting your intuition, right? I think with entrepreneurs, there's always this question of why are you well-suited to bring this company into being? And I, I like to ask this question because generally you find that there's a really, really interesting answer. And the simple reality is it's really hard to be an entrepreneur running a startup And so if there's something that's driving them that's outside of, you know, some mercenary means of they saw an opportunity and an arbitrage and they wanted to go for it, you you find someone who might kind of stick with it when the, the going gets a little tough. And I think... It's interesting and important to ask that question as an investor as well, which is why are you well-suited to make a particular investment to, to be alongside? Because if I've learned anything of venture, it's that these are really, really long-term relationships on all sides, your relationships with your investors, your LPs as a fund manager. More top of mind is the the relationships with entrepreneurs. And so I, I think at the end of the day, our job is first and foremost to provide capital and second to provide a sounding board. And so that sounding board better be relevant to the companies you're talking to. We've walked away from some awesome deals potentially that we just said, I just don't think I'm the right investor for you. And we've also kind of shown up maybe late into deals where we've Said, yeah, but like we we really understand what you're trying to do here. Like we really get it. And I promise you we're going to be useful investors. And, and in those cases, I think we have been. And so I think that that was my lesson early in venture was that it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like you have to be involved in every you know, shoot to the moon deal for the sake of it. In fact, they possibly those companies only did well because they had the right mix of people around the table who were well suited to answer the questions as they were coming up because the thing when you're doing something truly novel like really novel like our portfolio companies are doing is there's no playbook like nobody knows the answers and so you're trying to figure it out in real time so you and that means that yeah maybe you're pattern matching from somewhere but you know trying to pattern match from hopefully a relevant basis is is going to get you a lot further
0: Definitely. And as we wrap it up here, what would probably be your key takeaways for the audience if they probably want to become investors or maybe any startup founders in the audience?
1: Yeah, I think on the investor side, we, and I'm biased here because we're we're technical, my co-founder and I are technical folks and we invest in technical companies. And so we we think that's a relevant background and perspective. But I think and to to my earlier answer, I think that question of like where, where is your niche? What, what relevance do you carry forward? What do you, and it's not, and that's an ever evolving, you know, conceptual framework. Like hopefully you're always growing and becoming more useful in time. But I think starting out from the perspective of like, here's a thing I deeply know and that I can be useful on and, and, you know, build relationships from that going forward makes, makes a ton of sense for at least how we look at the the venture world. And, and and get known for that, you know, be, be loud about the things that you do with ease, because that will put you on other people's radar. When there's an interesting deal, you might get a call about it. Entrepreneur side, it's really asking that question of, man, this really needs to exist in the world. And I'm just frustrated that nobody else has done it. Not being the third or fourth person to take an iteration at an idea, but actually to say, here, here is something that I uniquely see as necessary. And it, I, you know, almost being that reluctant founder, almost being that perspective, that person of like, oh, like I I'm so annoyed that this doesn't exist and no one else has figured out how to do this. I guess I have to go do it. I think that when you have a feeling like that, that, that kind of drive and passion is the thing that we see as converting into just some of the most successful drive and perspective and team building, and it kind of makes everything easier.
0: Absolutely. Those are some great points. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And thank you, Mariana, for taking the time to join the show. It was a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Seamus. It was a lot of fun.